Chapter 21 of France and England in North America, Part 3, La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope for Swan. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 21, 1682-1683 St. Louis of the Illinois Louisiana was the name bestowed by La Salle on the new domain of the French crown. The rule of the Bourbons in the West is a memory of the past, but the name of the great king still survives in a narrow corner of their lost empire. The Louisiana of today is but a single state of the American Republic. The Louisiana of La Salle stretched from the Alleghenies to the Rocky Mountains, from the Rio Grande and the Gulf to the farthest springs of the Missouri. La Salle had written his name in history, but his hard-earned success was but the prelude of a harder task. Herculean labors lay before him if he would realize the schemes with which his brain was pregnant. Bent on accomplishing them, he retraced his course and urged his canoes upward against the muddy current. The party were famished. They had little to subsist on but the flesh of alligators. When they reached the Quinnipissas, who had proved hostile on their way down, they resolved to risk an interview with them in the hope of obtaining food. The treacherous savages dissembled, brought them corn, and on the following night made an attack upon them, but met with a bloody repulse. The party next revisited the Coroas and found an unfavorable change in their disposition towards them. They feasted them, indeed but during the repast surrounded them with an overwhelming force of warriors. The French, however, kept so well on their guard that their entertainers dared not make an attack and suffered them to depart unmolested. And now, in a career of unwanted success and anticipated triumph, La Salle was arrested by a foe against which the boldest heart avails nothing. As he ascended the Mississippi, he was seized by a dangerous illness. Unable to proceed, he sent forward Tonti to Michilimackinac, whence, after dispatching news of their discovery to Canada, he was to return to the Illinois. La Salle himself lay helpless at Fort Prudhomme. The palace at work which his men had built at the Chickasaw Bluffs on their way down. Father Zenobi Membre attended him, and at the end of July he was once more in a condition to advance by slow movements toward Fort Miami, which he reached in about a month. In September he rejoined Tonti at Michilimackinac, and in the following month wrote to a friend in France, Though my discovery is made, and I have descended the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, I cannot send you this year 
either an account of my journey or a map. On the way back, I was attacked by a deadly disease, which kept me in danger of my life for 40 days, and left me so weak that I could think of nothing but for four months after. I have hardly strength enough now to write my letters, and the season is so far advanced that I cannot detain a single day this canoe which I send expressly to carry them. If I had not feared being forced to winter on the way, I should have tried to get to Quebec to meet the new governor, if it is true that we are to have one. But in my present condition, this would be an act of suicide. On account of the bad nourishment I should have all winter, in case the snow and ice stopped me on the way. Besides, my presence is absolutely necessary in the place to which I am going. I pray you, my dear sir, to give me once more all the help you can. I have great enemies who have succeeded in all they have undertaken. I do not pretend to resist them, but only to justify myself, so that I can pursue by sea the plans I have begun here by land. This was what he had proposed to himself from the first, that is, to abandon the difficult access through Canada, beset with enemies, and open a way to his western domain through the Gulf and the Mississippi. This was the aim of all his toilsome explorations. Could he have accomplished his first intention of building a vessel on the Illinois and descending in her to the Gulf? he would have been able to defray in good measure the costs of the enterprise by means of the furs and buffalo hides collected on the way and carried in her to France. With a fleet of canoes this was impossible, and there was nothing to offset the enormous outlay which he and his associates had made. He meant, as we have seen, to found on the banks of the Illinois a colony of French Indians to answer the double purpose of a bulwark against the Iroquois and a place of storage for the first of all the western tribes, and he hoped in the following year to secure an outlet for this colony and for all the trade of the valley of the Mississippi by occupying the mouth of the river with a fort and another colony. This too was an essential part of his original design. But for his illness, he would have gone to France to provide for its execution. Meanwhile, he ordered Tonti to collect as many men as possible and begin the projected colony on the banks of the Illinois. A report soon after reached him that those pests of the wilderness, the Iroquois, were about to renew their attacks on the western tribes. This would be fatal to his plans, and, following Tonti to the Illinois, he rejoined him near the site of the great town. The cliff called Starred Rock now pointed out to travellers as the chief natural curiosity of the region rises, steep on three sides as a castle wall, to the height of a hundred and twenty-five feet above the river. In front it overhangs the water that washes its base. Its western brow looks down on the tops of the forest trees below, and on the east lies a wide gorge or ravine, choked with the mingled foliage of oaks, walnuts, and elms, 
while in its rocky depths a little brook creeps down to mingle with the river. From the trunk of the stunted cedar that leans forward from the brink, you may drop a plummet into the river below, where the catfish and the turtles may plainly be seen gliding over the wrinkled sands of the clear and shallow current. The cliff is accessible only from behind, where a man may climb up, not without difficulty, by a steep and narrow passage. The top is about an acre in extent. Here, in the month of December, La Salle and Tonti began to entrench themselves. They cut away the forest that crowned the rock, built storehouses and dwellings of its remains, dragged timber up the rugged pathway, and encircled the summit with a palisade. Thus the winter passed, and meanwhile the work of negotiation went prosperously on. The minds of the Indians had been already prepared. In La Salle, they saw their champion against the Iroquois, the standing terror of all this region. They gathered round his stronghold like the timorous peasantry of the Middle Ages, around the rock-built castle of their feudal lord, from the wooden ramparts of St. Louis, for so he named his fort, high and inaccessible as an eagle's nest. A strange scene lay before his eye. The broad, flat valley of the Illinois was spread beneath him like a map bounded in the distance by its low wall of woody hills. The river wound at his feet in devious channels, among islands bordered with lofty trees, then, far on the left, flowed calmly westward through the vast meadows, till its glimmering blue ribbon was lost in hazy distance. There had been a time, and that not remote, when these fair meadows were a waste of death and desolation, scathed with fire, and strewn with the ghastly relics of an Iroquois victory. Now all was changed. La Salle looked down from his rock on a concourse of wild human life. Lodges of bark and rushes, or cabins of logs, were clustered on the open plain or along the edges of the bordering forests. Squaws laboured, Warriors lounged in the sun. Naked children whooped and gambled on the grass. Beyond the river, a mile and a half on the left, the banks were studded once more with the lodges of the Illinois, who, to the number of six thousand, had returned, since their defeat, to this their favorite dwelling place. Scattered along the valley, among the adjacent hills, or over the neighboring prairie, where the cantonments of a half-score of other tribes, and fragments of tribes, gathered under the protecting aegis of the French, Swawanos from the Ohio, Abinakis from Maine, Miamis from the sources of the Kankakee, with others whose barbarous names are hardly worth the record. Nor were these La Salle's only dependents. By the terms of his patent, he held seigneurial rights over this wild domain, and he now began to grant it out in parcels to his followers. These, however, were as yet but a score, a lawless band, trained in forest license and marrying, as their detractors affirm, a new score every day in the week, 
this was after their lord's departure, for his presence imposed a check on these eccentricities. La Salle, in a memoir addressed to the Minister of the Marine, reports the total number of the Indians around Fort St. Louis at about 4,000 warriors or 20,000 souls. His diplomacy had been crowned with a marvellous success, for which his thanks were due, first to the Iroquois and the universal terror they inspired, next to his own address and unwearied energy. His colony had sprung up, as it were, in a night, but might not a night suffice to disperse it. The conditions of maintaining it were twofold. First, he must give efficient aid to his savage colonists against the Iroquois. Secondly, he must supply them with French goods in exchange for their furs. The men, arms and ammunition for the defense and the goods for trading with them must be brought from Canada until a better and surer avenue of supply could be provided through the entrepot which he meant to establish at the mouth of the Mississippi. Canada was full of his enemies, but as long as Count Frontenac was in power, he was sure of support. Count Frontenac was in power no longer. He had been recalled to France through the intrigues of the party adverse to La Salle, and Lefebvre de la Barre reigned in his stead. La Barre was an old naval officer of rank, advanced to a post for which he proved himself notably unfit. If he was without the arbitrary passions, which had been the chief occasion of the recall of his predecessor, he was no less without his energies and his talents. He showed a weakness and an avarice for which his age may have been in some measure answerable. He was no whit less unscrupulous than his predecessor in his secret violation of the royal ordinances regulating the fur trade, which it was his duty to enforce. Like Frontenac, he took advantage of his position to carry on an illicit traffic with the Indians, but it was with different associates. The late governor's friends were the new governor's enemies, and La Salle, armed with his monopolies, was the object of his especial jealousy. Meanwhile, La Salle, buried in the western wilderness, remained for the time ignorant of Labar's disposition towards him, and made an effort to secure his goodwill and countenance. He wrote to him from his rock of St. Louis, early in the spring of 1683, expressing the hope that he should have from him the same support as from Count Frontenac, although, he says, my enemies will try to influence you against me. His attachment to Frontenac, he pursues, has been the cause of all the late governor's enemies turning against him. He then recounts his voyage down the Mississippi, says that, with twenty-two Frenchmen, he caused all the tribes along the river to ask for peace, and speaks of his right on royal patent to build forts anywhere along his route and grant out lands around them, as at Fort Frontenac. My losses in my enterprises, he continues, 
have exceeded forty thousand crowns. I am now going four hundred leagues south-southwest of this place to induce the Chickasaws to follow the Chavanos and other tribes and settle like them at St. Louis. It remained only to settle French colonists here, and this I have already done. I hope you will not attain them as coureurs de bois when they come down to Montreal to make necessary purchases. I am aware that I have no right to trade with the tribes who descend to Montreal, and I shall not permit such trade to my men, nor have I ever issued licenses to that effect, as my enemies say that I have done. Again, on the 4th of June following, he writes to Labarre from the Chicago portage, complaining that some of his colonists going to Montreal for necessary supplies have been detained by his enemies and begging that they may be allowed to return, that his enterprise may not be ruined. The Iroquois, he pursues, are again invading the country. Last year, the Miamis were so alarmed by them that they abandoned their town and fled, but at my return they came back and have been induced to settle with the Illinois at my fort of St. Louis. The Iroquois have lately murdered some families of their nation, and they are all in terror again. I am afraid they will take flight and so prevent the miseries and the neighboring tribes from coming to settle at St. Louis, as they are about to do. Some of the Hurons and French tell the Miamis that I am keeping them here for the Iroquois to destroy. I pray that you will let me hear from you, that I may give these people some assurances of protection before they are destroyed in my sight. Do not suffer my men who have come down to the settlements to be longer prevented from returning. There is great need here of reinforcements. The Iroquois, as I have said, have lately entered the country, and a great terror prevails. I have postponed going to Michilimackinac, because if the Iroquois strike any blow in my absence, the Miamis will think that I am in league with them, whereas if I and the French stay among them, they will regard us as protectors. But, monsieur, it is in vain that we risk our lives here, and that I exhaust my means in order to fulfill the intentions of his majesty. If all my measures are crossed in the settlements below, and if those who go down to bring munitions, without which we cannot defend ourselves, are detained under pretext trumped up for the occasion. If I am prevented from bringing up men and supplies, as I am allowed to do by the permit of Count Frontenac, then my patent from the king is useless. It would be very hard for us, after having done what was required, even before the time prescribed, and after suffering severe losses, to have our efforts frustrated by obstacles got up designedly. I trust that, as it lies with you alone, to prevent or to permit the return of the men whom I have sent down, you will not so act as to thwart my plans. A part of the goods which I have sent by them belong not to me, but to the Sieur de Tonti, 
and are a part of his pay. Others are to buy munitions indispensable for our defense. Do not let my creditors seize them. It is for their advantage that my fort, full as it is of goods, should be held against the enemy. I have only twenty men, with scarcely a hundred pounds of powder, and I cannot long hold a country without more. The Illinois are very capricious and uncertain. If I had men enough to send out to reconnoitre the enemy, I would have done so before this, but I have not enough. I trust you will put it in my power to obtain more, that this important colony may be saved. While La Salle was thus writing to Labar, Labar was writing to Saint-Nelay, the marine and colonial minister, decrying his correspondent's discoveries and pretending to doubt their reality. The Iroquois, he adds, have sworn his La Salle's death. The imprudence of this man is about to involve the colony in war, and again he writes in the following spring to say that La Salle was with a score of vagabonds at Green Bay, where he set himself up as a king, pillaged his countrymen, and put them to ransom, exposed the tribes of the West to the incursions of the Iroquois, and all under pretense of a patent from his majesty, the provisions of which he grossly abused, but as his privileges would expire on the 12th of May ensuing, he would then be forced to come to Quebec, where his creditors, to whom he owed more than 30,000 crowns, were anxiously awaiting him. Finally, when Labar received the two letters from La Salle, of which the substance is given above, he sent copies of them to the minister Sainilay with the following comment. By the copies of the Sieur de la Salle's letters, you will perceive that his head is turned, and that he has been bold enough to give you intelligence of a false discovery, and that, instead of returning to the colony to learn what the king wishes him to do, he does not come near me, but keeps in the backwoods, five hundred leagues off with the idea of attracting the inhabitants to him, and building up an imaginary kingdom for himself, by debauching all the bankrupts and idlers of this country. If you will look at the two letters I had from him, you can judge the character of this personage better than I can. Affairs with the Iroquois are in such a state that I can't allow him to muster all their enemies together and put himself at their head. All the men who brought me news from him have abandoned him, and say not a word about returning, but sell the first they have brought as if they were their own, so that he cannot hold his ground much longer. Such calumnies had their effects. The enemies of La Salle had already gained the ear of the king, and he had written in August from Fontainebleau to his new governor of Canada. I am convinced, like you, that the discovery of the Sieur de la Salle is very useless and that such enterprises ought to be prevented in future, as they tend only to debauch the inhabitants by the hope of gain and to diminish the revenue from beaver skins. In order to understand 
the posture of affairs at this time it must be remembered that dutch and english traders of new york were urging on the iroquois to attack the western tribes with the object of gaining through their conquest the control of the fur trade of the interior and diverting it from montreal to albany the scheme was full of danger to canada which the loss of the trade would have ruined labarre and his associates were greatly alarmed at it its complete success would have been fatal to their hopes of profit but they nevertheless wished it such a measure of success as would ruin their rival la salle hence no little satisfaction mingled with their anxiety when they heard that the iroquois were again threatening to invade the miamis and the illinois and thus labarre whose duty it was strenuously to oppose the intrigue of the english and use every effort to quiet the ferocious bands whom they were hounding against the indian allies of the french was in fact but half-hearted in the work he cut off la salle from all supplies detained the men whom he sent for succor and at a conference with the iroquois told them that they were welcome to plunder and kill him the old governor and the unscrupulous ring with which he was associated now took a step to which he was doubtless emboldened by the tone of the king's letter in condemnation of la salle's enterprise he resolved to seize fort frontenac the property of la salle under the pretext that the latter had not fulfilled the conditions of the grant and had not maintained a sufficient garrison two of his associates la chesnay and lebert armed with an order from him went up and took possession despite the remonstrances of la salle's creditors and mortgages lived on la salle's stores sold for their own profit and it is said that of labarre the provisions sent by the king and turned in the cattle to pasture on the growing crops la forest la salle's lieutenant was told that he might retain the command of the fort if he would join the associates but he refused and sailed in the autumn for france meanwhile la salle remained at the illinois in extreme embarrassment cut off from supplies robbed of his men who had gone to seek them and disabled from fulfilling the pledges he had given to the surrounding indians such was his position when reports came to fort st louis that the iroquois were at hand the indian hamlets were wild with terror beseeching him for succor which he had no power to give happily the report proved false no iroquois appeared the threatened attack was postponed and the summer passed away in peace but la salle's position with the governor his declared enemy was intolerable and untenable and there was no resource but in the protection of the court early in the autumn he left tonti in command of the rock bade farewell to his savage retainers and descended to quebec intending to sail for france on his way he met the chevalier de Bergy, an officer of the king's dragoons commissioned by labarre to take possession of fort st louis 
and bearing letters from the governing ordering La Salle to come to Quebec, a superfluous command, as he was then on his way thither. He smothered his wrath, and wrote to Tonti to receive de Bajoville. The chevalier and his party proceeded to the Illinois, and took possession of the fort, de Bajet commanding for the governor, while Tonti remained as representative of La Salle. The two officers could not live in harmony, but, with the return of spring, each found himself in sore need of aid from the other. Towards the end of March, the Iroquois attacked their citadel and besieged it for six days, but at length withdrew discomfited, carrying with them a number of Indian prisoners, most of whom escaped from their clutches. Meanwhile, La Salle had sailed for France. End of chapter 21 Recording by Hope Force One